Searching through all of the videos on the internet is not a simple problem. In order to search through all the videos, you need to build a search index. In order to build a search index, you need to build a web crawler. Video files are large. To crawl all of the actual video files is expensive enough. If you wanted to store all of the actual video files, that would cost way too much money. So in order to build an efficient index in a way that manages your costs, you need to have a way of storing the information about a video without storing the entire video itself. You might be thinking, why would I care about this? Hasn't Google already solved video search? Why are we even talking about this? Google has solved some aspects of video search. But there's a different set of challenges that is being tackled by a video search company called PEX. In order to explain what PEX is building, we should first explain the problem set that they are trying to tackle from a business point of view. Videos across the internet are consumed on a variety of platforms. You've got YouTube, you've got Instagram, Facebook, Vimeo. These videos are sliced up, they're bootlegged, they're repurposed from one platform to another... And if you're a content creator who earns their living from hosted video streams, this can be a nightmare. Imagine you're a musician, and you make lots of money from your music videos. You upload your cool new video to YouTube, and it instantly gets bootlegged by other users and shared across the internet in hundreds of different places. When people watch the stolen versions of your video, you're not getting compensated. If you could locate all of those stolen videos, you could order them to take it down or claim that the video is yours so that you're going to get paid for it. And here is the engineering problem. How can you find all of those reposted videos? How can you find sections of your video that have been repurposed and reused in ways that are not okay with you? You can find those videos by crawling the web and building a search index for every video on the web. Rasty Turek is the CEO of PEX, and in this episode he describes how to build a system that crawls the internet and indexes videos. This is a large-scale engineering challenge, and there are lots of trade-offs to be made between financial cost, speed, accuracy, engineering complexity. It was really interesting to talk to Rasty. Before we get started, we are looking for a videographer. We're also looking for writers for Software Engineering Daily. We are also looking for a couple of other roles. You can find those job postings at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs. And if you're looking to get involved with Software Engineering Daily on a lower commitment basis, we've also got the open source projects at github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily. We have apps that are purpose-built for Software Engineering Daily. And you can also check out those apps in the App Store for iOS or for Android. We just got a new update to the iOS app that creates a feed based off of what episodes you've listened to. So if you listen to episodes, you can get recommendations based off of those episodes, recommendations for related content and other episodes. And we'd love to have you check it out. We'd love to have you contribute to it. So you can check those things out. And with that, let's get on with the episode. Rasty Turek, you are the CEO of PEX. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much. 
You're building a search engine for video and music, and I want to get into the implementation of that because there's lots of great software engineering questions, but let's talk about the motivation, the business model. Why do we need another search engine, and why do we need one specifically for video and music? Well, this one is a little bit different, or at least the purpose of it is a little bit different. Even it resembles very closely to the modern search engine, so we go out and we crawl the web, we extract the audiovisual content. The purpose of it is a little bit different, and it's used for very direct analytics on the virality of the content and then rights management. So we work closely with rights holders, creators, uh, brands, and to help them to understand the spread of their content, who is consuming it, where and stuff around it. So it's not necessarily for the end audience the same way as Google or Bing. So the business model is that if I'm a creator and I've got videos throughout the internet, I want to find where those videos are. I want to find the bootleg instances of those videos because otherwise I might not be able to monetize the views on those videos. Monetization is one and it's usually the smaller portion. The, the larger one is uh, it's just the general analytics and general understanding of where the content goes and who consumes it. Because the problem is if you as a creator upload the content to YouTube, that doesn't mean it's consumed on YouTube. It just means it will spread out everywhere across the internet. And then you are missing out on the size of the audience, on, the, on the, who is being interested and who is interacting with your content. And as a consequence of that, the creators tend to focus on the direct audience they have data on. So, you know, it is what you measure, it's what you become. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's the true audience. It also doesn't offer and show the whole potential of their content. So when they are talking to the advertisers, it's very different when they say, you know, I reach 14,000 people on a daily basis than when they say, well, actually, it's 1.4 million across the globe. And this is how it breaks down. I am a creator of sorts. I make a podcast. How does the outlook of the podcaster in 2018 compare to the outlook of a YouTuber or a Spotify musician or an Instagram influencer? I think podcasts are a little bit more siloed. I think they're not as spread as any other content. I think they're usually consumed from two, three, four, five places where the users are kind of used to it. But at the same time, sometimes the podcasts are picked up by other shows or they're picked up by other podcasters or just in general, uh, maybe even YouTubers and others. And it's fairly interesting to see for the creator where the content goes and why will they pick up this episode and what they talked about. So it's kind of a reference. You can think of it as a website links pointing to each other. So we kind of make that connection for the creators and help them to see that in um, kind of real time-ish fashion. As you said, if I'm a YouTube musician and I publish my YouTube video on YouTube, then it can potentially be taken and reused in other places on the internet. And I would like to know how it's performing in other places on the internet. Why is that though? And how would YouTube videos be taken from YouTube and repurposed for other places on the internet? Well, there are many different reasons why, and uh, how is very simple. Uh, users just literally download the content that they are watching, so the simplest way is just open a browser, wait for the stream to come in, and then just take it out of the hard drive for essentially just capture the stream that is coming in. However, people need to realize that 
a lot of these platforms are blocked across half of the planet. So for instance, YouTube is not available in China. It's blocked in Turkey. Its most popular channel, Vivo, is not available in Germany. And platform after platform has different rules and they approach things very differently. And then the audiences are not spread out evenly and equally. So even Facebook has 2 billion users or YouTube has over a billion users. It's still not the whole population of the internet. So a lot of users will take that content and spread it wherever they are comfortable or wherever they are home. So there are platforms like Wiki in Russia, Yuku and Tudo in China. And even in the US, you have different platforms like Instagram where the content has a little bit different connotation and maybe feeling than it has on YouTube. So users very, very often take portions of the videos and re-upload them to their Instagram with maybe some overlay of themselves singing to it. There's uh, there are whole platforms built on top of that, like Musical.ly or Smule, where people just um, sync to the tunes uh, together. So I think this is just a form of expression. And if you think about how internet was always built around spreading, this is just a normal behavior that I will say the, the older establishments, and I don't mean necessarily just companies, but the society itself, wasn't necessarily adjusted to this up until maybe recently. And I think as, as we are progressing, you're seeing this more and more. And a good example is animated GIFs. They're on their own are not expressions of some unique content. However, they will be expressed differently, even if they're coming from a content that wasn't meant for something. So animated GIFs as a memes are very, very unique form of expression. And even when they are originating in a content that has maybe a little bit different message in it, as animated GIF with the with the meme itself, it will become a very different tool, very different expression. And I think users are using their creativity to express themselves this way. Okay, let's imagine I'm a YouTuber and I publish a video in the United States, and I want to know how that video performs in Turkey. Well, since YouTube is blocked in Turkey, then probably if somebody is a fan of my content, they're going to take it off of YouTube and republish it onto a site in Turkey. Maybe they'll also take it and publish it on Instagram without labeling it with who I am, or maybe they take out some section of it and publish it on Instagram. As far as I know, Instagram is, you know, you can be on Instagram in Turkey. And so as a creator, I want to be able to index the different instances where my content exists, despite the fact that I only initially uploaded it to YouTube. And that's valuable because if I know that people are in Turkey are fans of my music, maybe I want to cater to them in Turkey or maybe want to cater to them on Instagram. Is there any other reason? What else am I missing about the value of knowing where people are watching my videos? It's not only where, but it's also what. And as you pointed out, in many cases, they pick portions of your content. So it's not necessarily that you produce something large and they take it in whole. In many cases, they just take the portions. And those portions are very important because that's a wisdom of the crowd telling you that this area in your video, audio, podcast, whatever that is, represents the portion that, that people are the most interested in. So it's not only that they watch this in Turkey, but this is somehow more resonating with them because they are telling you through their actions. As a consequence of that, let's say you are a musician, you could uh, now 
go and try to get a deal to have a live concert in Turkey because you know that there is audience. It's much more uh, reliable based on the data when, you know, if you show up in Turkey and say, it's like, well, I'm a musician and you believe some people around will, may enjoy my music, I think you will have a very hard time to book a venue and get the promoters on board with it. So I think the general notion is here with the data, you can actually make more educated decisions and it helps you in the overall business. And the outcomes of that are very different for different people. So as a rights holder that is representing the rights and wants to monetize the content in, in the form or shape that, that you decided to, this allows you to understand where to maybe get a licensing deal, what platforms are being the ones popular. As a brand, for instance, this helps you to understand where your customers lie or where actually you are having better ROIs that you expected. For movie studios, especially on the trailer side, this allows you to understand what countries may be the first on the box office if you didn't think about them that way. So when you see the trailers are clicking very well in Taiwan, maybe it's a time to have a Taiwan in the first day of a box office instead of being the day of 100 where the movie's already leaked all around the torrents and everywhere else. And because the world is not treated equal at this point, this information matters significantly to every single rights holder in a little bit different way, but that's what we actually allow across the board. I see. I'd love to return to the business question and the discussion of creators a little bit later. I'm very curious about the lives of creators and the future opportunities for creators, how big that market is and so on. But people listen to this show because they want to know about software engineering and now that we've stated the problem that you're trying to solve, there's plenty of interesting engineering questions that we could explore. I think the core of the question is, I upload a video, I need to be able to detect where that video is playing across the entire internet, and in order to do that, I'm going to need to index the entire internet in a way where I can match my video's fingerprint against all of the other videos in all of the other places across the internet. Is that correct? Do I understand the problem statement well enough? Yes, that's exactly correct. Okay. So video is inherently hard to index, and that's because you have this long sequence of images and sound. What are the steps to building a search engine for video and a search index for video? Yeah, well, there is a lot of moving pieces in place. So the very first one is, if we start from the, the, the search engine point of view, there is a need for a spider and crawler both at the same time. So that means you have to be able to discover where the video actually is. For that, there is not many, I will say, smart ways to do it, just a brute force through those platforms. And some of the platforms are significantly large. So for instance, YouTube at this point is a little bit more than 4.5 billion videos and growing by four to five million videos a day. And that means we have to keep up with this load and we have to find each video as soon as it's uploaded. That means we have to return to those platforms very often. We have to follow the links and we have to expand on that through each platform. So there is just the first step is to even keep up with the information that there is a new video. The second step is we have to be able to download that video. So that means in some cases you have to simulate the browser because a lot of platforms will use 
techniques to prevent to prevent the direct scraping or uh, direct connection. So for instance, in, in some cases, DRM. In other cases, they just build something in-house. But at the same time, you have to be able to do this across the board. So that's a pretty significant thing. And then just downloading the content. I mean, it's, uh, it's a lots of lots of content. And uh, when you already have all the content in, you have to somehow be able to index it. So in our case, that's fingerprinting with our own algorithms. And the optimization comes on the speed that you have to keep that content in your hard drive. So for us, because we want to make this viable in a business sense, we cannot store all the content because it represents uh, exabytes of data. So the fingerprints represent a very small portion of the original size. And usually it's the kilobytes to hundreds of megabytes. And you have to create those fingerprints as fast as possible. But as you pointed out, indexing and in general, working with video is very intense on the CPU or whatever processing mechanism are using. So that's where the optimization comes. But even when you have all of these done and when you finally have the uh, fingerprints, now you have to be able to search through them. So we have now a database larger than 10 billion videos and we have to be able to unearth information about the relationship between video A and the whole catalog within minutes at worst. And that's where all of these interesting things come together. To do this at a a massive scale with a high precision and economically, it's where the challenges are lying. So we spent over four years building this together and I believe we are at the forefront of the market at this point. Okay, there's a lot of different points in there that we could dive into. Let's talk about the process of fingerprinting. So if I am a creator and I want to find all the videos that have been created from my video or that may take a sample of my video, I need to create a fingerprint of my video so that when PEX is crawling the internet, PEX can check if the fingerprint corresponds to one of the videos that the PEX engine is crawling, at what point in the crawling and the indexing of the web do you compare that fingerprint of my video to all of the different videos that you are crawling? Like, do you crawl the internet and then grab all of the videos and then hold them for a while and then, like, do the fingerprinting and then, like, let the videos go? Or do you, like crawl the internet and then one by one, like whenever you come across a video, do you check it against all of the fingerprints in your database that you need to be looking for? Like, tell me a little bit more about that process. Well, we actually hold all the videos forever. We don't hold the underlying videos because at this point we are roughly 1.8 exabytes of data in. So we processed in the lifetime almost two exabytes of data. So how we do it is we download each, each audiovisual content, we fingerprint it, and we throw it immediately away. So we only store the fingerprints. And then when so our sorry, customer you, you comes download, to... You download the, the content for every single video on YouTube, every for video every in every single video. Correct. It's also for live streams or any other source. So it's a lot of, it's a lot of data. And then the fingerprinting process on its own is optimized to a massive capacity and speed. So instead of us going with uh, FPGA or custom processors, we figured out how to do this as fast as possible on traditional CPUs. And then we utilize the cloud offerings of what 
some call preemptive, other call spot instances, uh, which essentially it's short-living servers that cost pennies or cents on the dollars, and we are able to run them in masses. So essentially, it's just a massive brute force across uh, hundreds of millions of videos at any given point. And then when we store these fingerprints and customer comes to us later, uh, we are able to search through them. So essentially, it's not in any sense of real time. It's more kind of delayed. Even if when we process videos at the same time, we usually run those fingerprints against everything that we are actively searching for. So in some cases, the delay can be as short as 30 seconds after the video is uploaded. In other instances, it can be the lifetime of the platform. So we are still able to match the video that was uploaded, the very first video that was uploaded to YouTube with any video that we have in our database today. Okay, so the process of creating a fingerprint, is that some kind of rolling hash function? Or You don't have to give me the proprietary secret sauce, but can you tell me about, in broad strokes, how you build a content ID system? Yes, it's a fairly complicated because you have to deal with distortions, and the distortions come in many forms of shapes. So for instance, uh, some clever users remove, let's say, every 12 frame from the video, which doesn't impact the quality of the video, but it will throw off a lot of different systems in place. Some people speed up, slow down. Others will put frames around the videos, put uh, blurring filters around them, horizontally swap the images, put a lot of logos in them. So our algorithms have to deal with all of that and have to deal with that in the, in the, on the indexing side. So what we focused on is we spend as much of the resources as possible on the indexing side where the search is then the cheapest function possible. So in our case, it's kind of, you could call it the rolling function. It takes in a lot of different inputs and it tries to figure out what is important within period of time. And uh, the result is, is essentially a, a very simplistic tensor that holds the data as a representation of a portion, not necessarily time-based or also not frame-based. It's kind of in between and it's, it allows us to identify content short as half seconds. So that's why we are able to take animated GIFs that are created as a memes off a two-hour log movie and we are able to connect them back to each other. But as, as I pointed out, we have to deal with a lot of distortions. In some cases, as a good example, is Shia LaBeouf going bonkers in front of green screen, where people replace the green screen with a lot of different stuff. And uh, matching this back to the original, is a, it's a fun challenge. I don't think I completely understood your explanation of the, the crawling and the storage, and that's my fault. So you get a fingerprint for every original video on YouTube so that anybody, if they wanted to look up the videos that have been derived from a video for which you have a fingerprint, you can serve that query because you've made a fingerprint for everything. I didn't quite catch what you are doing in terms... Cause so, like you said, you can't index all of Snapchat and all of YouTube and all of Instagram and all these things because if you saved all of the videos, all of the the potential derivative sources, that you wouldn't have the money. You, you don't have the budget to store all that data. So I'm sorry that I, I didn't catch it. But for each of those videos across Instagram and Snapchat and so on, are you making some derivative of that video that captures the essence of that video and then doing a mathematical comparison from those to the fingerprints? Because you've got all the fingerprints stored durably all the time, 
what are you doing with all of that content across Snapchat and YouTube and Facebook and so on as you're crawling it? So the fingerprints are literally the essence of the content. So the fingerprints are essentially able to tell us what the content holds. And uh, we do not hold, as you, as you pointed out, we do not hold any of the videos ever. So once the video is processed, that means fingerprint is created, it's immediately deleted. At any given point, we don't hold more than a couple of hundreds of terabytes of data in a kind of a mid-cache because we will end up bankrupt very soon. So what the fingerprints allows us to do is essentially use mathematical formula to compare them between each other and they tell us the story about what portion of the content is being or is not being used between themselves. And then we are able to return them as a visual information back to the user where the user then can go. And if the content is still available, that means it wasn't removed in, the, in between that query time and indexing time, they can go and watch them in the precision of like half second to see where the content is overlapping and what that means and they can verify this information and then we also capture a lot of the metadata surrounding those videos, so how many views it has, who commented it on it and a lot of other stuff and we are able to expose this back to the users so we are able to give them deep analytics on where the content goes and what it means and who interacts with it and stuff around that. So as you're crawling the internet for all the videos across Snapchat and YouTube and Facebook and so on, are you merely running each of those videos through the same fingerprinting tensor generation process so that you have a, a mathematical artifact that you can just compare to the fingerprints? Correct. Okay. That's pretty cool. And then you can, because then you can actually store, you can store, because it's not expensive to store fingerprints of everything across Snapchat. Yes, actually for all 10 billion videos that we have right now, which I think average length is around 17 minutes, the, the database is only roughly 100 terabytes big. So the fingerprints are very small and they allows us to run very fast queries across them, themselves for that exact reason, because the formula is essentially equal for every single video. And that, that allows us to expose this information across every single video we've ever seen, including videos that were removed. So we are able to kind of go backwards in the time and tell the story of a video that doesn't even exist anymore. Right. You can tell the story in terms of like maybe why that video got removed. But I mean, the fingerprint isn't, isn't going to tell you that much information, right? I mean, or, or I guess you could store the metadata also. You could store the comments and other things, but what do you mean you can retell the story? So, for instance, let's say somebody leaks a video. Let's say it's about a senator doing something crappy, and the senator is able to take that video down, or any other situation where this, this happens, and that video spreads. And now you see a derivative of that video going around, and then maybe CNN runs it. And now your question is where this came from. How did this even happen, right? And we are able to, if we saw the first original video and every oh. single content of that, we are able to backtrack back to the first very occasion where it happened, who uploaded it, what people commented on it, how many views it attracted over the time. And then when it was removed, why the reason, if that reason was given, why it was removed. And then we are able to track this across the internet. So we are able to do kind of the reverse Barbara Streisand movement where, you know, when somebody goes after, after the content, we can tell where it came from and what's going on with it. 
and we are able to measure that virality. And then on the, on the content itself, even if we are not able to reproduce it, so we are not able to take the fingerprint and replay that video to you, we are able to tell you if any other occurrence of that video will ever show up. And in many cases, this is very interesting for the authorities where you are dealing with very sensitive content like terrorist videos where you want to make sure that this just doesn't spread and you want to catch every occasion of that video and every single platform before it, it catches on. So we are able to assist with that and uh, many, many other angles. Okay, interesting. So governments could potentially work with you if they wanted to prevent the spread of terrorist videos. Wow, fascinating. The crawler, you know, you don't want to have to crawl over videos that have not changed. So, like, if a YouTube video has not been changed, do you know that? Can you tell that from the metadata on the site? Like, if I'm a creator and I upload a video, and then you crawl it, and you do the fingerprint comparison, and then 25 minutes later, I replace my video with something with Kylie Minogue in it, you would like to be able to get that signal and, you know, recrawl it. You would recrawl the video itself. Does YouTube give you metadata for that? Or do you actually have to do some manual crawling over material that might not have changed? So um, we have t two systems in place and the one is checking the metadata and the one is just dealing with the audiovisual content. The metadata itself doesn't tell any story outside of itself, you know, how many views, what the description is and and these kind of things, but it doesn't point out that the video was changed. For that, we, we came up with a very simple solution to it where we check the information regarding the video and audio stream. So if that video changes and you don't keep it precise, so for instance, the original video had three minutes and 27 seconds, but the new video is three minutes and 25 seconds, we know something changed. Also, we extract very small portions of the content, usually just first uh, or second 200, uh, 512 bytes of that video, and we check if that hash, if simple SHA-256 or something similar, we take that hash and we check if, if any change was happening in that video. And um, this information is sufficient enough for us to know if we have to reprocess that video or not. And it actually works quite well across the board. So tell me a little bit more about the infrastructure that it takes to run this crawler. The crawler itself is not as, as big as it looks, although it sends roughly 70 billion requests a day. It is not that complicated. It's uh, written in Go and it has very few moving parts. It only looks for signals that we are internally or that the system can, can interpret in, in its own way. What is maybe more interesting and more heavily deployed is caching. So one of the very important things for us is to cache every single request that we have and hold that information as long as possible. So we want to know that, for instance, this page that holds this video is changing very sporadically. So we don't have to access it 20 times a day, but instead it's enough when we show up once a week or maybe even uh, less. So the crawler itself is very straightforward, very simple. It do doesn't have many, many complexities in it. And I think that's why it's also able to scale. Where the complexity comes from is we don't want to take down platforms when we send a lot of traffic to them. So we are trying to be very mindful of the way that we are doing this. And we also hit a couple of bugs in our lifetimes where we took massive platforms down for hours. 
So over the years, we develop systems that prevent us from doing so. So for instance, the idea is uh, we shouldn't be sending more than a couple of requests a second to any given platform, no matter the size. So we try to bundle the requests together. We also try to be very mindful of what we have to touch and when we have to touch it. And we have algorithms that are making these decisions and preparing the request uh, along the way. So the, the crawler themselves then just interact on these tasks, I will say, and grab the data that they see and then send them back to the pipeline. And everything we build in the infrastructure is built as a asynchronous pipeline. So it's a, you, can, you can think of it as a, a factory where it goes from one conveyor belt to the other. And they kind of work independently from each other. So one component doesn't block the other from, from functioning. And that allows us to kind of smooth the selling for the crawlers to grab the data on its own pace and then let the other components to deal with the with the data on their own pace, scale at, the, at their own size, wherever they want to be without manually needing to tweak any of these. And it took us a couple of years to get here, but um, we are now able to scale almost in, infinitely if there is enough of resources available to us. What are the different databases and storage systems, you know, maybe at the caching layer and at the persistence layer? Well, so the persistence layer for us, it's a very heavily sharded Postgres. We love Postgres because it's a, it's a battle-tested database and we know it fairly well. So we utilize a lot of its functions like triggers that allows us to run storage procedures on every single on every single row of data that we insert. And that, as a consequence, we have all the algorithms that make the decisions are written directly in the Postgres itself. So we have kind of a ETL in a, in a sense built within the Postgres. We also build a lot of extensions around it that allows us to take actions directly from the Postgres instead of having third-party components that we will have to write and that will have to interact with Postgres. So it's kind of our heart and brain. It also makes our SRE job much easier where we know that we have to keep our Postgres instances up and running and 24-7 and we have to protect them from anything to be happening. But it allows us to run everything else as a form of cattle, essentially, where we can shoot servers when they start limping, essentially. So we have very few servers that have to be protected and have to be available at any given point and a lot of servers that don't. The caching layer was implemented in a mix of different databases, but we are now moving towards Foundation DB and we will be utilizing that solely for the whole caching purpose as it scales very nicely and it allows to able to hold petabytes of data and still have uh, millisecond responses for all of them. So we are quite happy with the performance that we see and we will be expanding on it. But as a historic, uh, we had uh, implementation with Redis and then depends on what kind of data, the videos are usually stored in something like S3 or Google Storage for the period of time that it needs to be processed because the price for that storage is very low. And then the web pages are usually stored within something like Redis or Memcached, where they are held for as long as possible to be used between the components. And the interesting part about that is that the components, because they are first of all independent from each other, but also because they don't have to interact and they don't have to communicate. If a different component is uh, needing 
same data or at least data from the same page, it can just hit the cache instead of going back to the page. So we save, uh, I will say, many billions of requests a day towards the platforms, which allows us to kind of operate a little bit sneakishly and don't hurt the platforms with extra traffic that they don't need to get. Yeah. The thing that struck me about what you just said was the the stored procedures in Postgres having a lot of the functionality of your core platform in Postgres stored procedures. Can you tell me more about that decision and what those stored procedures are? Absolutely. If you build even our Postgres, we build it a little bit differently than you think of SQL databases. We kind of think of it still as a pipeline. So we have multiple tables that get data at the forefront. So, so we have uh, writers that essentially grab data from different components and write them to the correct tables, but they don't make any calculations. There is nothing. There is no external component that touches those tables. Instead of that, each single table is running a stored procedures through a trigger. And uh, in those stored procedures, we make decisions like, for instance, if this video gained a thousand views in less than an hour, I want the spider go back and essentially grab that same page in the next hour. And this information is then sent out to kind of the managing part for the spider for, or for the crawlers, and it's then acting on at the right time. So. This is kind of the first wave. The second wave is where we merge the data to each other to eventually expose them to our customers. So our customers don't interact with the whole database. They instead of get their own place where they have information stored. And even when we have to store the same information in multiple times, which requires a little bit more space on the hard drives, it allows us to run ridiculously fast queries where we have now almost 2.2 trillion rows of um, historical updated updates, and we are still able to run queries in under one second for any single customer across all of this information. And the reason for that is that if we've broken those tables down to, to small pieces, and then at each step and at each time a table gets an update, these procedures then make decisions on what shall be exposed and it's then copied to a table number three, for instance, and this table holds intermediary data for the customers and then other table gets a new update that is now mixed with this table and it goes on up until it reaches its destination. And we've run a lot of uh, different procedures, including machine learning, which is exposed directly in Postgres through our extensions where we run interesting algorithms at top of the data that we are seeing. So for instance, for every single video we process, that means it has to have both video or audio. We also run annotation algorithms that allows us to expose information like this portion of audio track is containing music, this other portion contains, I don't know, shootings, the other things is a human speech, the, this other portion is animal sounds, and then we are able to store this information and expose them to the customers or do something later with it. And we have these for both in video and audio where we expose or extract a lot of uh, additional information from the content itself. And now lots of um, these algorithms afterwards are running or a lot of algorithms are afterwards running on this data directly in the Postgres where they make decisions like, for instance, if the fingerprints are saying these two things are matching, however, the annotation algorithms are not saying the same story, we then proclaim them as a false positives. It's sent to our R&D department that they 
then look at the content and um, see if there is anything going on with the fingerprints. Maybe we made a mistake. Maybe there is something wrong with the annotation. But these things need to, need to kind of confirm each other. And it allows us to be very, very precise in, in comparison to our competitors where we use a lot of different signals to make those decisions and all of that is completely automatic. And why we choose that to do in Postgres is first of all, it allows us to not to write extra components because if you are going off the database, you will now have to have the drivers to connect to it. You will have to communicate with it. That means read and write back to it where the procedures are already working on the data that are stored in the memory at any given point. And second of all, because Postgres runs in transactions, that means that procedure needs to finish successfully. So if it doesn't finish successfully, it is then returned at the forefront. So if we have seven tables connected to each other, the first table will return an error to the writer and the writer will have to repeat that whole writing sequence. So even if it's a little bit more expensive on the resources and yeah, on the resources, it gives us 100% accountability for the data. So we don't have situations where something happened in between of the transaction and then it just died. And it's very important for us and our customers that we can reliably give them data at any given point. So we much rather sacrifice performance. That means we have to take a little bit more time for the rightness of the data. Are there any disadvantages to putting so much functionality in a place where it's tightly coupled to the database? Well, the downtimes are then severe. So essentially, whenever there is any problem with the database on its own, that means everything is impacted. So every single component in our infrastructure gets in halt that is interacting with the database. We minimize this to a very small portion, but it's still a significant part. It also influences our customers that have no access to the data whatsoever. So we have to keep those databases up and running no matter what. The other thing is it's very hard to debug and just measure and monitor these things because the procedures are ran on every single row that is inserted into the database. And as a consequence of that, we have no visibility into what happened, when it happened and why it happened in the process. So usually the benefit of that or kind of the, the disadvantages that benefit at the same time, once you've write it well, then there's never a problem. But writing it well can be a challenging thing, especially when you have chain tables through triggers across each other. So for instance, uh, we have seven tables that are copying the data between each other or kind of like from each other to the next table. And those are written by different people in our organization. So we have to interact very tightly on all of these decisions because if one person makes a mistake, then it's propagated up to the, to the end of the, to the customer. The good thing is, as a kind of consequence of the databases, we are able to reply any situation from the kind of the backlog or from the previously stored information. So if you made a mistake at some point, we are able to start from that point again and just run it again. I will say that the hardest part is definitely debugging and monitoring. And then also the deployment. I mean, Postgres was never meant for this, uh, was never built for this. So we have to kind of twist its arm a little bit. I will say the impressive part on the Postgres side is that the database can really withstand a ridiculous amount of pressure and is able to deal with uh, incredible complexities that we introduced in it. 
And I think that's one of our biggest kind of a secret air quotes weapons where we don't have to build a complicated procedures around the database. We just build it in the database. Well, we have done three shows with people from Citus Data, which is the company that you, you've probably heard of. They built a lot of functionality around the Postgres SQL extension capability. And I mean, they're sponsors of, of Software Engineering Daily, full disclosure. But I find it interesting that their approach to enabling people to build a data platform, because you see all these companies that want to build a data platform now, you know, whether it's whether it's yourself or it's Uber or or Facebook or Thumbtack, you know, companies that are, they have all of this transactional data, they have all of this OLAP data, the, the analytical data, and getting between those two phases, I mean, it's always been a challenge, but the, you know, the scale of data continues to grow and also the access patterns of different people who want to get at that data, whether you're a data scientist or you're writing machine learning algorithms or, or you want to write algorithms for what you're doing, the fingerprinting kind of thing. You know, you have all these different things that you want to do on top of your data. And so you have a data platform problem. It seems to be a problem that people are attacking from from different angles, one of which is this all Postgres angle. And, you know, as you mentioned, this deployment problem, that sounds like a kind of a big deal because everybody wants to be continuous delivery. And like, I mean, you, I guess you can do continuous delivery with a database, right? You could just have some sort of staging thing and some sort of testing thing where you have like a subset of the database or you have some sample transactions that you're going to run. Do you do anything like that? Do you have a continuous delivery pipeline for your database? Yes. So sort of. Uh, it's not as sophisticated as it sounds, but we do have a staging environment where we are exposing portion of the data to the system and then we are able to test out live what will the consequences of uh, any of those deployments be. We do hold versions of the triggers and the stored procedures in kind of our internal wiki. We don't have any automated system behind them because we write those procedures very sporadically. I will say maybe one a month, maybe even less. As I pointed out, once it's written, it's, it's actually is very stable and it's very nicely performing. So we don't have anything very complex behind it, but we do have kind of a manual mid-level where we deal with these complexities. Actually, interestingly enough, when you pointed on Citus Data, we are very happy customers of theirs, very happy paying customers of <laughs> this theirs. This was not so planned. We use, <laughs> yes, uh, we use Citus Data very extensively for the last two years in our Postgres, so we do actually horizontally short through Citus and it's our only database that we use. And it's, it's true that I have nothing but the praises to tell about these guys and their, their work. And it, uh, in, the, in all truth, it allows us to build what the complexities into the Postgres because the horizontal sharding allows us to break these tasks to a small instances where they are ran on a single shard, which is fairly small in comparison if we will have to run a massive deployments of each Postgres on every server. So now this is a consequence of that. We have hundreds of thousands of transactions occurring at any, any given second, but as a benefit of that, if one transaction dies, it doesn't influence the whole database. It influences just that one single transaction. 
and that you are able to also achieve a ridiculous scale in in, in terms of uh, performance. So, for instance. At any given point, we've write roughly 60,000 rows of data into the database on the forefront. So that means in the interesting tables. And then we take hundreds of thousands of uh, decisions within next minute on those data. And uh, all of that is ran all in almost uh, real time. So for instance, when we measured how quickly will the occurrence of the data be from the forefront table to the back table, that means to the table that is visible to the user, and there are five tables in between, it takes roughly 17 milliseconds. And that is with all applications of all the machine learning models and all of the uh, storage procedures that needs to be acting on. And the, the reason why this is, is because the data is already in memory, Postgres already is working on the data actively at the point that where we are evaluating it. So the, the overhead is very small and then it's just going down to the engine, how quickly it can perform the information that we need. And then we've wrote a lot of other extensions in directly in C, so we can take advantage of the, of the speed of the, and the, the performance of the language itself. I heard you say at some point part of the persistent storage is in S3, part of it's in Google Cloud Storage. Are you running lots of infrastructure on both cloud providers? Actually, we have seven. Seven cloud Um, providers? Yes. Okay. There are many reasons for it, Uh, one being that we compete with YouTube in some sense and uh, having everything Google is uh, quite challenging, maybe more on the business and legal side than it's on the technical side. Um, Although I must say we are very or quite fond of Google Cloud Platform, I think it's our most preferred platform to deploy, uh, deploy anything in. But we utilize different platforms for different things, although our crawlers are in general deployed in every single platform. It's also for outages reasons and different uh, geographical reasons. So for instance, some content that is available only in China is not available anywhere else. So we have to utilize Alibaba's cloud for that content. And then some other content is maybe available only in Germany. So we have to have data centers that actually are able to wrap the content in Germany. So we don't use proxies for this purpose. We build our own infrastructure that, that my colleague named Hydra, which essentially is our own routing that goes off or it kind of uh, ends up in, in, the, in any of those uh, data centers of the cloud providers, but then it gathers the data back to the origin. So if it's running in GCP or it's uh, AWS, then it, that's where the data will be eventually processed. So we deal with a lot of complexities in the world that we live in, which is not necessarily technical. It's more around that content is not available in portion of the world or it's not exposed because the creator doesn't want it to. And if we want to be able to expose that content to everybody on our customer side, we have to be able to process that content. So we have to deal with those things. And then we also like to spread the traffic evenly. We had some occurrences of situations where we took down peering centers for our customers or for our customers for the cloud providers when we ran a massive deployment in single data center. So we started kind of spreading this evenly so we don't impact anyone along the way. And also it's easier for the platforms where we touch different CD and nodes instead of the one and we don't hammer the one single instance with all the traffic that we send. 
All right, I could keep asking about these cloud providers a lot. Actually, I had one weird question I wanted to ask you. So let's say you had a million dollars in cloud provider credits, but you could only spend them on some of the newer, higher-level managed services. What would you spend that million dollars in credits on? Higher level, you mean by... Let's say like things like BigQuery... Or, okay. or or Kinesis. You couldn't just like throw this million dollars at, at infrastructure. BigQuery is a pretty good one. We like that one a lot. As a deployment, we tend to build a lot of our own, but BigQuery is a, is a very, very good uh, piece of technology. And we actually store a lot of data there to, for like quick ad hoc analysis. I don't know if a million dollars is that. Um, I, I, you know what? Actually, there is a thing. It's essentially uh, now called Apache Beam. It's a uh, oh yeah. It's essentially data flow. So we utilize that very heavily. You do. We are very yes. We we love that piece of technology. It's it's incredibly powerful because it allows us to spin tens of thousands of servers at any given point uh, to run very quick computations at a mass scale, and it costs us hundreds of dollars to thousands of dollars. And it's able to attach as much data as we want across all the providers we have. Because of the integrations done within GCP um, ecosystem, it allows us to, you know, it's like there's no much configuration. And the other one that we quite get, uh, grew fond of is uh, Airflow from Airbnb, which is now fully hosted on GCP. And it's also one of the things that we really like for any ETL pipelines where our data analysts that don't necessarily know how to code very deeply, they are able to build pretty significant pipelines on the data after the fact when they want to run things like questions or want to answer questions like how much content was added to YouTube to particular category within the last 24 hours and how that compares to Twitch, for instance. Beam is something that would that slots in like the apache beam data flow slots in for something like spark right like apache spark it's cold yeah we use it on our side it's still going through our own systems but at the end of the day it's called end up in spark it's called even end up in bigquery so the, the idea of apache beam is essentially that you can apply any rules on your etl and that etl is essentially run by a trigger so if you take a data let's say you have petabyte of data stored within a google storage and you want to be able to add plus one to every single timestamp, you can do something like that. Or you want to aggregate the data across the globe, across the whole data set, and you want to be able to expose the data back to maybe your analyst. So for instance, you want to group a massive amounts of data based on some complicated calculations. Or in our case, we want to touch binary data, which BigQuery cannot. So we want to touch our fingerprints, which as I pointed out, is a, it's a tensor. We want to be able to run calculations on the top of those fingerprints and then expose them directly to us. So we actually run something what we call a backlog search, which allows us to run backwards queries on the whole content. So we are able to take a video that was produced nine years ago and measure it against everything that was produced ever since, against all of the platforms and all of the databases that, or all of the index that we created since. Okay, interesting answer. I want to wrap up with just one more far-flung business question. Do you have any ideas for what 
people misunderstand about this new world of creators and influencers where anybody is making video content or music content anybody can start from their bedroom and make something creative what's your vision for how this world changes in the next five or ten years i think that what was kind of addressed within last decade or so with youtube and other platforms in place is that the distribution is easier than ever so a lot of creators and influencers that they became influencers over time are now able to do this because the platforms allow them to. What is missing from their kind of tools bed, it's everything after that. So how they manage their rights, how they enforce their rights, how they even understand the content and their audiences. Whereas a lot of the large creators rights or large rights holders, mostly on the corporation side, so like uh, Hollywood Studios and others, are utilizing a lot of deep analysis on the data. So they're trying to make a very complex predictions on their content and on the environment. And I think what the next five, 10 years will look like with the individuals or at least uh, smaller creators and influencers, they will get access to these kind of tools and hopefully we'll be able to challenge the incumbents on the scale, maybe not necessarily all of them, but at least to take significant portion back to themselves because the intermediaries take a lot of money out of the table. And I think the YouTubes, the YouTubes, but also the large rights holders, right? So if you are under MCM, MCM takes portions of your revenue that, that you generated for in exchange for some services that they gave you, which is not not necessarily worth as much or not necessarily worth nothing. But I believe eventually those tools will be available to all the creators. And then once the playing field is leveled, I think what will happen after that is that we will have more uh, direct relationship the same way as now the brands are becoming more direct to consumer. I think the creators will be much more connected to with their audiences. Well, today it's, it's kind of finicky when they are connected to a portion of their audience. It's not actually the whole audience. It's maybe not even their audience. As the people who spread their content, it's essentially not allowing them to interact with this audience, this portion of audience. And from other measurements, it's uh, for every single viral video, the audience that they don't see is at least the size that the audience they see. So if a video has a million views on YouTube, there is a chance that it has maybe five somewhere else. And that's the audience that they just don't have access to. And I, I do believe that they will eventually have visibility in the, into that audience and they will be able to take uh, advantage and expose that relationship which will lead to better content created for the right audience. Rasty Turek, thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been great talking to you. Thank you for having me. Wow.